You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, The man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also.
G'day City on a Hill. Thanks so much for tuning in today. My name is Nick and I get the joy of being the lead pastor of City on a Hill out in Melbourne's East. Uh, and today, the joy of picking up the scriptures and opening them with you. We are going to pick up where we left off last week. Uh, and that is now uh, in the book of Exodus, the eighth week in our series and journey through Exodus. We're going to turn to an episode today that is significant, not just for the book of Exodus, but for the whole Bible itself. And so we'd love for you to prepare your heart with me as I lead us in prayer now. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that your word is true and it is powerful. And so Lord, would it be both of those things for us today? Lord, would we be sanctified in your truth? Would we be changed and transformed by your power? And so we commit this time together to you today in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great things of growing up in the 90s, as I did, was the amount of awesome phases and crazes that I was a part of. First, there was the bowl cut with an undercut haircut phase, uh, where we all had exactly the same haircut. It was who could shave, shave the, uh, the, the sides and the back of their head as tightly as possible and as deeply up uh, as possible. Uh, then there was the basketball card phase, uh, which became contraband uh, on my primary school playground. Uh, that then shifted into the yo-yo phase, and you'd want the best yo-yo that could sleep the longest so that then you could pick it up and walk the dog with it. Uh, that then turned into the Tarzo phase, which were little discs that came with your cereal. Uh, then it turned into the Pokemon phase, which apparently is still continuing down to today. But my favorite of all these phases was the WCW World Championship wrestling face. It's caused a lot of injuries in my household. I got two older brothers uh, and we were not shy about acting out uh, the wrestling moves of our heroes, which often included household items like garbage bins and tables. Uh, but in wrestling, one of the most memorable moments of the liturgy of every Monday Night Nitro was when the announcer would stand in the middle of the ring before the main event and he would make an epic announcement. I can still remember the words that he would use. And now, for the heavyweight championship of the world, are you ready? For the thousands in attendance and the millions watching around the world, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, let's get ready to rumble! And the crowd would go wild. I'll share that with you today because therein lies a fitting summary of Exodus 1 to 7. That announcer didn't know what he was doing, but he was recapping for you and me. A summary of Exodus 1 to 7. Because in our journey so far, God has been setting the stage for an epic contest. Not just a contest between Israel and Egypt or Moses and Pharaoh, but between God himself and the gods of Egypt. Last week, this contest turned up a notch because God unleashed the plagues upon Egypt, showing his power. And it was a power specifically targeted against the catalogue of gods that the Egyptians will have been worshipping. This week, he's going to turn it up even further. This week, we come to the main event. This week, we come to the Passover. Uh, we read in, in Exodus 12, verse 12, that God says, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And so this week, God is going to bring a final judgment 
on his enemies. And in doing so, he's going to bring a final and full salvation for his people. And so we'd love for you to journey with me through. We're going to start in Exodus 11, and we're going to focus in on three particular things as we move through the story. We're going to talk about the warning of judgment, the passing of judgment, and the legacy of judgment. Let's first look at the beginning of our text and look at the warning of judgment. God speaks again to his servant Moses, but he speaks this time with a sense of finality. Uh, In Exodus 11 verse 1, he says, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Last weekend, I uh, was able to chop down one of uh, an overgrown tree in my backyard, except uh, the thing was, I didn't really get to chop it down. I had to saw it down because I'm, I'm not much of a handyman. And the only tools that I have is some tools that my grandma got me when I got married, and they're actually uh, labeled DIY woman. Uh, and so that kind of shows how much how handy I am. Uh, but I found an old blunt handsaw in the shed. Uh, of our place, which was probably left there by former tenants. Uh, So I used that. And as I was uh, struggling to to, uh, saw off these branches, I was thinking to myself, man, I would would love to have a chainsaw right now. But because I didn't have a chainsaw, I couldn't come at it with, with one fell swoop. But instead, I had to go after the branches, limb by limb, branch by branch, to get this thing down. And here God is, with all the resources at his disposal, all the power in his hands. He could have chopped Pharaoh and Egypt down in one fell swoop, and yet he intentionally chooses not to. God is strategic here. He is purposeful. And by having nine plagues leading up to this moment, he is intentionally cutting them down piece by piece, branch by branch, limb by limb, so that the full gamut of his power might be revealed and might be made known. In fact, if we were to look at these plagues, and line them up against the uh, Egyptian mythology of the time, the pagan gods that the Egyptians worshipped, we would see that God has been cutting them down, actually not limb by limb, but God by God. Starting with uh, an Egyptian deity called Happy, uh, who was the god of the Nile River, through to uh, the ninth plague that we've captured already last week, where God uh, brought darkness over Egypt, uh, which was cutting down the chief god of the gods of Egypt, Ra the God of the sun. At every single point, God has shown his power over everything the Egyptians were trusting in. And now he's got one plague more, he says. And so God is going to go after the son of Ra, which was believed to be Pharaoh himself. The Pharaoh was thought to be the firstborn child of the chief God, Ra. And that's going to make sense of the judgment that is going to come. Because Moses goes in to Pharaoh and delivers the most serious threat that he has yet been given. We read this in in verse 4 to 6. Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there never has been, nor ever will be again. And so nine times God has shown his power over the gods of Egypt, over creation, 
over the Egyptians, over their posturing and over the hard-heartedness of Pharaoh. Nine times he has been called to come and relent and repent and to let God's people go. And yet nine times Pharaoh has hardened his heart all the more. And so this 10th plague is going to be final and it is going to be totally devastating. I want you to notice a few things here in the text. In in verse 4, we read that God says that he is going to come and do this one himself. To this point, he's been using other means, frogs, flies, and gnats. Now he says, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. God himself is going to come fully and finally. The time for God to use means and work through other things is over. Now it is time for God to come and deal with this himself. Secondly, since the fourth plague, God has created a separation between the Egyptians and his people, the Israelites. Every plague since then has affected Egypt, but the people of Israel have been spared. And the people of Egypt have noticed. And so we read in this section that that separation is actually going to be even more pronounced now Because the people of Egypt are actually going to get up and drive the Israelites out themselves. They're actually going to give them gold and all their jewelry just to try to get them out of their country themselves that they might leave faster. Now, finally, notice when this is going to happen. We're told about midnight in the cover of darkness. And at this point, the Egyptians will have been used to darkness because the ninth plague brought darkness over the land for three whole days. And we're told in the text that it was a darkness to be felt. Imagine that. Every time you stepped outside, goosebumps. The hair on the back of your neck stood up. It made the air heavy, claustrophobic, and it lasted three whole days. And in the darkness in which these last two plagues, the ninth and the tenth, would occur, It's actually symbolic of the darkness that all of Egypt is actually under spiritually. And so Moses, who goes out from Pharaoh in hot anger in these verses, that anger is likewise just a foretaste of the anger of God against the sin of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, their oppression, the fact that they enslave God's people, that they worship these created gods. And that they remain hardened to the true God. The I am who I am, Yahweh himself. And so God is going to bring judgment. Just as a previous Pharaoh did in the first chapter of Exodus, where we read that he declared that that all the firstborn of the Israelites needed to be thrown into the river. God is going to return that judgment upon them. God is going to show Pharaoh that he is the only one who can give and take life. And before we move on from the the emotional intensity of this moment, we should consider ourselves. Often when we're reading this episode in in the Bible, we we, we focus in, don't we, on Pharaoh's heart. You know, we read about him hardening his own heart or God hardening the heart of Pharaoh. And we, we love to speculate about Pharaoh's heart. But it can often be a distraction from thinking about our own heart. The Bible tells us that like the Egyptians, we too, indeed all of humanity, live in darkness. The New Testament says that because of our hard-heartedness, 
we actually live in the domain of darkness. And because of this darkness, we therefore actually live under the same warning that Pharaoh himself is receiving here. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed for man to die once and then after that face judgment. For all the times, like Pharaoh, when I have hardened myself against the will of God, when we have sat on the throne in our own lives, directing our steps where we want, for pridefully embracing the comfort and power of other things, for making God-like decisions ourselves without respect to the God who actually is there, who made us and gave us life. For all that, God says, you and I will be judged. We can resist as much as we want, but in the end, just like Pharaoh, we're going to have to come to God face to face and deal with him directly. And the Bible does us a favor, in fact, by letting us in on how that judgment is going to go. Because it tells us that the wages of sin is death. That the wages of our hard-heartedness, the payment for it, what it's due, is death. As gruesome and serious as this threat is toward Pharaoh and the Egyptians, as hot and fierce as God's anger is toward their hard-heartedness and their stubbornness, so too God is angry at my sin. God is angry at your rebellion. God is angry and he's going to judge us and all those who are outside of him with eternal death. And as you hear that, and even as I say that, and as we read it, it's very tempting, isn't it, to think, gee, that sounds a bit harsh. Gee, the, the, the punishment there sounds a bit disproportionate to the crime. We can be shocked at the seemingly disproportionate consequence of sin. And yet, ironically, that is exactly the problem, isn't it? Our shock at the seriousness of sin. That we minimize the problem of having hard hearts toward God. Our shock is in the wrong place. A 19th century preacher, Charles Spurgeon, he once said, we should be far more shocked at the sin which deserves hell than at the hell which comes out of sin. And so let this passage, let my words be as Moses to Pharaoh to you. Our lives are actually lived in this time where we've received the warning as Pharaoh has, and yet it hasn't yet been acted upon. Our lives are lived under the threat, but before the execution of it. But a plague is coming. God's wrath is coming. Eternal death is coming. God is, once again, going to create a separation between all those who are with him and all those who remain in their hard-heartedness, in their stubbornness against him. And the question is, Whose side will we join? On which side will we be found? Where will we run? This then leads to the warning actually taking place. So let's read about the passing of judgment. Because after the warning comes the provision or the promise. And the promise is known as the Passover for obvious reasons, as we'll see. And God gives instructions to his people about this in chapter 12. In verse 3, he says, Tell all the congregation of Israel 
that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And we're told later that, that each of these lambs needed to be without blemish. And then down in verse seven, seven, it says, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. And then again in verse 11, in this manner, you shall eat it with the belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I'll strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I'll execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so judgment is coming, but God is gracious enough to provide his people with a way of escape, a way to be passed over. Now, notice that while the separation had occurred in previous plagues, and while we're, uh, knowing, we know that a separation is to come when the Egyptians would drive the Israelites out, that actually when the plague would come itself, there would be no separation. It would fall on both the Egyptians and the Israelites alike. The whole nation of Egypt was going to fall under this plague. That is, God wasn't asking his people to put blood on their doorposts just so that he would remember that's where his people live. No, he knew their address already. He knew where they lived. No, God wants them to put blood on their doorposts, blood of a spotless, blemish-free lamb on their doorposts so that as God passed everywhere through the nation, he would see the households for which a sacrifice had already been made. Death was going to come to every single house in Egypt that night. The only question was who would die? Would it be a lamb? Or would it be a firstborn son? And so God offers the Israelites not escape from judgment altogether, but a substitute for the judgment. The Israelites needed a substitute. And if you think about that substitute, we know that it's not a really a fair trade, is it? A lamb is not nearly worth the same as a child. And that tells us that this sacrifice that the Israelites were called to make, it wasn't really about the preciousness or value of the lamb. It wasn't really about the preciousness or value of the firstborn sons. Rather, it was a sign. In fact, the text itself that I just read out said, this shall be a sign for you, a pointer to a true and better substitute, to one who is so precious that he really could stand in the gap and be the substitute to satisfy God's judgment. These lambs were a placeholder for something or for someone, for another substitute. And so the Passover that we read about here is really a, a pointer to a true and better redemption. And you and I need to hear that because if the threat of judgment stands over us, if the warning has gone out to us, we need to know how we might be able to be passed over because we missed this one. If you're new to Christianity or still figuring it out, that's where the good news of what we call the gospel comes in. 
just as the blood of the lamb would hang over the doorposts of the Israelite households and satisfy God's judgment then, so too God offers blood to hang over the doorposts of your heart, to hang over the doorposts of your life, so that God would pass over you as well. God has provided you a substitute. And in the biography of Jesus written by his friend John, in the very first chapter, he recounts about another John, John the Baptist, seeing Jesus very early on in his ministry. And as he sees him, he, he can't help himself but, but cry out to everyone around him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus would be the Lamb of God for us. And just as the judgment came upon Egypt as God passed through, bringing the final plague of death to bear upon his enemies, so too the judgment would come upon Jesus as he ended his perfect, blameless, blemish-free life upon a Roman cross. He bore the weight of God's wrath as at that time in the middle of the day, darkness came over the land like midnight over the place where he was crucified. And yet in Jesus' death, you and I are passed over that we might have life in him. What was eternal death and it inevitably coming for us when we would meet God personally, face to face, in Jesus becomes for us eternal life, that when we meet God face to face, it will be coming home to a father instead of finding a death sentence. Another one of Jesus' closest supporters throughout his life, his friend, the Apostle Peter, reflecting on this reality after Jesus had risen again, wrote, you were ransomed, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so God himself has taken on flesh in Jesus and come into our world that he might be the lamb substituted for you, slain for you. Jesus has laid down his life, poured out his blood that in dying on the cross might be your eternal death there, already paid in Jesus for you. Jesus is your substitute. One of the most popular TV shows in my household is The Block. Uh, and when The Block inevitably comes on uh, every year, there is that capstone episode of every week where there is the room reveals. And the room reveals are exciting because you get to see all the work that it's never, you've never really got the right camera angles to see how it's all come together. Finally, you see it come together. But they're also frustrating because I, as when I watch room reveals and you see the glory of this redeemed room, the judges are frustrating and the judges walk into this room. And for one couple, as they are judging this room, there always seems to be them pointing out something that they say the opposite to the next couple in the next room. So for example, they'll, they'll walk in as they're judging this new room and they'll see this glorious mirror on the wall and think, man, look at that mirror. That mirror 
is incredible. Mirrors, so in this season. How good are mirrors? Look at, the, look at that mirror, awesome. And then just five minutes later, I don't know how long it was in reality, but five minutes cut into the episode later, they're, they're in another apartment judging another room and there's a mirror. And you're thinking, man, I can't wait till they say how good this mirror is. And they get in and they go, oh, look at that mirror. Gee, what is this couple thinking with this mirror? Mirrors, so last season. And their judgments are just so subjective. It's, it's what they're vibing. It's the vibe of the thing. It's, it's, it's what they're feeling. And yet here's the amazing reality about what you and I can experience in our lives. That is that when it comes to the final judgment, when we finally meet God, see Him face to face, He's not going to be like the block judges. There's going to be no subjectivity about it. It's not going to be based on how we woke up in the morning. It's not going to be based on the vibe. It's not going to be based on the feeling of the thing. No, we have the judgment right now because the judgment has already happened. The judgment has already been cast upon Jesus and not upon you or me when we are in Him. We can live our lives free. Imagine that tonight you went to sleep and you had a very vivid, real dream. In fact, it was so real that you actually had an out-of-body experience and you got to see what happens in the moments after you die. Something that humans speculate on forever and ever. You get to see it. And you got to kind of hover above the, the courtroom of your life and that judgment moment. And you got to see the judge himself hand that gavel down and say, not guilty. The penalty has already been paid. Imagine what it might feel like when you woke up with that kind of assurance to know that your future is secure that you have received eternal life, not because of anything you have done, but because Jesus has come to be the substitute for you. What kind of freedom and joy might you experience if you had that experience? Well, you can have it right now. You can put your trust in Jesus right now. You can live your life following Jesus right now. You can express your faith in Jesus. Lean on Him for that moment right now. And the promise is, is that you can feel and experience that assurance today because Jesus has stood in the gap. Jesus has paid the price. Jesus has laid down his life as the Lamb of God for you. It doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter what kind of guilt you walk around carrying. It doesn't matter what kind of dishonor you have brought to yourself, to your family. It doesn't matter what kind of shame that you wake up with and go to bed with at night. In Jesus, you can have eternal life. All of that paid for and put away. In Jesus, you can finally find freedom and reconciliation with the God who made you. And so put your trust in Jesus today. Come to Jesus today. You can have the blood of Jesus painted over the door of your life by trusting Him, by recognizing your sin and turning and putting your faith in Jesus, accepting God's offer of salvation of the Lamb in Jesus. As we heard in our Bible reading, the judgment did indeed come upon Egypt. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh is finally, painfully, begrudgingly forced to say up 
go out from among my people, both you, Moses, and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. And so the Israelites who have been instructed to, to get dressed, they're, they're eating the Passover, dressed already to go, get up and go. And the Exodus finally begins. And so let's finish with looking at the last aspect of this episode, the legacy of judgment. Because the rest of our, the passage that we're covering this week details some of the things that God put in place to ensure that what happened will never be forgotten. And so God says in, in Exodus 12, verse 1 and 2, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. And then in verse 14, he says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And so from this point on, the calendar of God's people was going to change. The rhythms and the routines were now going to be shaped around God's deliverance in the Passover. Their lives would be centered around the remembrance and the celebration of this meal, which in turn celebrated what God did as they held a feast each and every year. And that tradition was passed down through the Israelites on down into Jesus' own day. And so we get a picture of Jesus himself celebrating with his disciples the Passover. In fact, we actually get a specific glimpse into the final time that they celebrated that together, just hours before Jesus would be on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for us. In Luke's account of this, Jesus says this in Luke 22, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I'll not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. As we've seen in Exodus to this point, the story of Exodus is, is no random series of events that God had to respond to, but rather a setup so that he might display his glory, he might display his power, and he might deliver his people for his own sake. And what Jesus says here in his last Passover tells us too that Jesus going to the cross was no random series of events that he was responding to, but rather a planned and purposeful sacrifice. Jesus takes the first act of Passover in the Exodus, and he shows that actually it's just the preface to what he himself has come to do for us. And in doing so, he invites all of his disciples, indeed he invites all of us who follow him down to today to feast with him. And so the Passover becomes the Lord's Supper or what we might know as communion. And it becomes that, that, that we might make the cross of Jesus now central to our lives in the same way they made the Passover central to their lives. Bread, just like Jesus' body, is given to remember his body given for us, substituted in place of ours. Wine, like Jesus' blood, is given to 
remember Jesus' sacrifice for our sins in taking the judgment that we deserve. And so I ask you, do you know this Jesus? Do you know that his body was given for you? Do you know that his blood was poured out for you? Do you have that assurance that by faith in him, you're in him, you're with him, you're heading to eternal life with him, to feast with him again? Have you recognized your need for a savior? Have you recognized that that savior has been provided, that the lamb has been sacrificed in Jesus already? You know, God loves you so much that he sent his only son to live for you, to die for you and to rise again in victory, to provide a way for you to be free, a way of escape from the judgment of God, to provide a way to leave the chains of Egypt and enter the family of God. And so come to him today. Trust in him today. Believe on him today. Find assurance in him today. If you want to commit your life to Jesus right now, uh, we have people ready who are willing to talk with you. And so do let us know right now. But we are as well in this fitting moment going to celebrate this meal together. If you are a follower of Jesus or if you want to become one today, then you are welcome to join us in partaking of the bread and the wine or the juice. And so I invite you to do that with us now. I'm going to pray uh, and then we're going to partake as one together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. We praise you that you have given us your son, that he might live in our place, but importantly die in our place as a substitute for us. We praise you that you have given us him, that we might build our life around him, that we might rest in upon him, that we might put our trust in what he has gone through in death for our eternal life. And so we thank you for giving us your life, Jesus, your body and blood, that we might find that life in your death. And now, Lord, we don't presume to come to your table trusting in our own righteousness, but in your great mercy. We thank you for these gifts, this bread and this wine or juice. And we pray that we who eat and drink them in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and in obedience to our Savior Christ may be partakers by faith in his body and blood. Renew us by your Holy Spirit. Unite us in the body of your Son and bring us into the joy of your eternal kingdom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.